Hello, welcome to our audio Bible study. This is lesson six out of twenty-five lessons, and I pray that this entire series will help you know more about the God of the Bible. God bless and enjoy the series. Well, is there ever going to be peace on earth? Well, you see, the Bible refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Look at Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. Yet there seems to be a remarkable lack of peace in the world today. You open your newspapers, you look at your TV and news on TV. There seems to be violence, violence, and more violence. Well, the question is: Does God have a way of restoring real peace into the lives of His people on Earth? Well, this is today's Bible lesson: True Peace on Earth. Well, what does the Bible say about God's promise? Peace actually is promised to those who love the law of God, or for those who willfully are ready to obey God. In Psalm one hundred and nineteen, verse one hundred and sixty-five, and I quote: "Great peace have those who love your law." Unquote. Well, this essentially says, in a very simplistic manner, in the Bible, you have two choices. You have a choice to live in this increasingly violent, morally decaying world. You make that choice. Or you make a choice to live in a peaceful world that God's initial plan had. Well, you have that choice. You can make that choice. And if you choose to live in a peaceful world that God has promised, then you need to make that choice willfully. You need to make the choice to live in this world that God has offered you. And to do that, you need to know, respect, honor. That what God is trying to do, which means obey His commandments, you see, this cannot be more clearly shown in the Bible. In the Bible, it does say, "The people alive on earth then, and who are ready to meet Jesus when He returns." This is the second coming of Jesus. These this group of people have a certain characteristic, and they are described as this other group. Or this is the group that keeps God's commandments. In other words, all of God's commandments. In other words, on the other hand, the Bible is saying there is no peace if we don't keep my commandments. Or as Isaiah chapter fifty-seven verse twenty-one says, there is no. I quote: "There is no peace for the wicked." Unquote. So this is very clearly stated in the Bible, as clear as bell, as it said. Look at Revelation chapter fourteen, verse twelve. I quote: "Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus." Unquote. In this verse, it just basically and clearly describes the characteristics of this group of people in the end times. Well, we did talk about commandments. We talk about God's law. Well, what are the commandments? Well, in essence, there are ten commandments. Exodus chapter twenty, 
verse two to seventeen describes all ten of them, and I'm going to go through each one of them now. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Number three, you shall not take the name of your Lord in vain. Number four, and this is very important. It starts with remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness. And number ten, you shall not covet. Unquote. Now this is between chapter uh, in chapter twenty between verse two and seventeen, clearly stated. Now in our study, we're not going to go into detail in each one of those commandments. We will leave that to a later date, but this is where the Ten Commandments are that we need to follow and abide by. Well, then some may ask, well, the Ten Commandments was brought down by Moses from Mount Sinai. Then the follow-up question would be, well, what about those people who lived before this Ten Commandments was coded on two stones or two tablets? What about those people? Did the Ten Commandments exist before God wrote them on these tablets? Well, Genesis chapter uh, chapter twenty six verse five answers that question. Here the verse is talking about Abraham. Abraham obeyed my I quote Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Unquote. You see what the Bible has just said here is Abraham lived long before the commandments were coded and written on stone. Uh, on Mount Sinai. So when Cain killed Abel, this is way back in Genesis. It they broke or he broke the sixth commandment, meaning you shall not murder. And God told Cain that very very clearly. Unquote. Sin lies at your door. This was back in Genesis chapter four verse seven. You can see here very clearly that the Ten Commandments. Were in existence before God wrote them on Mount Sinai. God used the word sin all the way back when He was talking to Cain. Now, what does the Bible mean by sin? In First John, chapter three, verse four, and I quote: "Sin is lawlessness." Unquote. While in the King James version it says, "Sin is the transgression of the law." Unquote. The very fact that sin exists in today's world is evidence that God's law still exists and it's still binding. In fact, the Bible tells us that if the law of God didn't exist, there would be no such thing as sin. I mean, that's a simple logic. Look at Romans chapter four, verse fifteen. We are going to cover a little bit more about sin and the transgression of the law a little bit later, but. Let's look at some additional facts about the Ten Commandments here before we carry on. The facts are: God wrote these commandments with His own finger. 
Exodus 31 verse 18. And these commandments, or the two tablets, were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The original Ark of the Covenant is in heaven, indicating that the Ten Commandments still exist in heaven today, right now. Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. Also, the Bible calls God's law perfect in Psalm chapter 19, verse 7. Perfect means lacking in nothing. Also, the Ten Commandments reveal to us what is sin, as we talked about in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Without the commandments, we wouldn't have an idea what sin is. And the commandments are eternal, meaning forever and ever. Look at Psalms chapter 111, verse 7 and 8. Commandments can be summed up in two succinct principles. The first principle is love God, love for God. In other words, covered by the first four commandments. And the other principle is love for others, covered by the last six commandments. Now this was seen in Matthew 22, verse 37 and 40. So these are the two pillars upon which the first four commandments hang and the last six commandments hang. Now here we want to look at some controversy, if you like. The con controversy is the, the, the using the word the law of Moses. The law of Moses, if you like, are ceremonial laws, not this moral law or the commandments we're talking about. And therefore the law of Moses were never part of the Ten Commandments. The law of Moses, if you like, or the ceremonial laws, if you like, they were abolished when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died on that very moment, the veil in the temple split into two. Look at Mark chapter 15, verse 38. What that demonstrated was that the Jewish temple services, with all the sacrifices and offerings, were now obsolete. All these Jewish temple services, as written in the ceremonial laws, therefore were abolished when Jesus died on the cross. However, the moral laws, which is not the ceremonial laws, the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, will remain in effect forever. We just talked about in Psalms chapter 111, verse 7 and 8. Therefore, the law of commandments or the moral laws are now are and have always been a part of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Now, these are the additional points that you may want to remember in this Bible study. I just, just said that they were part of the laws of the commandments, were just part of the new covenant or New Testament. See, the New Testament's writers understood the timeless nature of the Ten Commandments as well. In essence, the Ten Commandments are a written transcript of the character of God. In other words, the character of God was clearly written in words for us to understand, in built into the commandments. Just as the laws of a country would reflect the character of a country or a nation, 
and its lawmakers, just as the constitution of a country will reflect the character and nature of that particular country. The Ten Commandments reflect the character of God and the character of His kingdom. And this is never meant to be replaced nor be abolished. It's meant to exist eternally. Romans chapter 7 verse 12. I quote, Therefore the law, which is the moral law, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Unquote. So this defines the holiness, the justness, the mercifulness of the character of God. All right, now that we've established what the Ten Commandments is, then what's the purpose of it then? Why have the Ten Commandments? I mean, were the Ten Commandments given to burden God's people? Or, as some skeptics may say, the commandments are there to make sure that God's people will fail. Is this what it is? Well, no, not at all. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, it specifically addresses this query, if you like. I quote, For this, the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, unquote. You see, the Ten Commandments were given by God to be a blessing to his people, not to burden his people. And when we say blessing, what does it mean? Blessing means it's something good. Look at James chapter 1, verse 25, and chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Any person who lives in harmony with God's law will enjoy the freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from the penalty of sin, and freedom from sin itself. What a liberating thought and position to be in. That's why in James it's called the law of liberty. You see, we live in a world bonded by sin, bonded by fear, bonded by guilt, bonded by shame, and the law in itself will give us a way out from all this bondage. It is a ticket to freedom. It's liberating. So that's why it's called a blessing. It is a blessing because it is a guidance, a tool to get away from this horrible bondage of this world. And how does the Lord do that? Well, in the most simplistic manner, the law of God identifies the places where we ought not to go. It tells us that is where you would burn your finger. Don't put your finger in there. It identifies sins. It points us away from sin towards Jesus. Without this indicator or this guidance, we wouldn't know that we put our finger in the fire. With this indicator, we know this is the place where you ought not to go. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 7, and I quote here, What shall we say then? And this is Paul writing in, uh, in, to the Romans. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not, Paul says. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet, unquote. In its 
simplistic paraphrasing, without the mirror, I would not have known that my face was dirty. That's the purpose of the law, to tell us how dirty our face is, how sinful we are, to show us that we are sinful. And without the mirror, without the law, we would not know. Given all this, it is really unusual that some would say that the Ten Commandments was abolished. Was it ever abolished? Well, let's look at what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 3, verse 31, it says, and I quote, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law, unquote. You see, Apostle Paul here never ever suggested a change had ever made the law of God uh, obsolete. In fact, he was adamant that God's law is unchangeable and eternal. Despite all this, you still hear murmuring that says that the law of God was was abolished. Let's go to another Bible verse and see what the Bible says about whether the law was ever abolished. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 and, uh, 17 and 18, and I quote, Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled, unquote. Here, Jesus said very clearly that he didn't come to destroy the law or abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. Jesus never intended the Ten Commandments to be set aside. So while he was on earth, he said, I, I quote, I have kept my Father's commandments in capital S. In John 15 verse 10, Jesus counseled his people to keep the commandments. His words to the rich and young ruler would, could not even be clearer. It says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments in plural form. Unquote. Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. How clearly can the Bible put it? Yet, yet, there are those who murmur that this law of commandments have been abolished after Jesus died. That is biblically untrue. Well, let's take this uh, murmurings a little bit further and explore it. We talked about the Ten Commandments will never be abolished, it will be eternal. Well, let's have a look at the ceremonial laws that we originally talked about. See, the ceremonial laws are distinct from the Ten Commandments. They're not the same as the Ten Commandments. They're not the Ten Commandments. They are a separate law unto itself. The ceremonial laws was essentially a pointer to the real thing. It points to the plan of salvation. It's not the salvation itself. Elements of the various sacrifices in the ceremonial laws, the various feast days, help believers then throughout all the ages to understand more about how God saves sinners. For example, the sacrificial lamb represents Jesus. It points to Jesus sacrificing himself for us sinners. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. 
John chapter 1, verse 29. The protecting blood of the Passover lamb in the ceremonial law, when applied to the doorsteps of the houses of the faithful, this is talking about just prior to the Exodus, represents the saving blood of Jesus Christ who died for us. So all these ceremonial practices, rituals, point to the real thing, point to the real sacrifice that Jesus will be coming. This is where in the Old Testament times to complete and offer the real sacrifice. So you can consider the ceremonial laws as a road sign leading you to the real place. And then what happens when Jesus died? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, it was no longer necessary to observe those ceremonial laws, the ritual sacrifices, which only points to the real thing. But when the real things happen, where Jesus died on the cross, where the lamb was being sacrificed, then there is no more a need to practice those rituals. The death of the true lamb, which is Jesus, rendered further animal sacrifices meaningless. The sacrifices had pointed forward to the Lamb, as we talked about just now. Once the Messiah died for the world, which is the real thing, there was no need to point towards his coming anymore. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, he cried out with a loud voice and breathed or breathed his last words. Then the, it says it's finished. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Look at Mark chapter 15, verse 37 and 38. God was signifying that the temple ceremonies are now no longer binding on his people. Now, what about the Passover and other feast days? The Passover feast days was now no longer necessary, for indeed Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. This Passovers and other feast days, no longer would God's people be obliged or obligated to offer sacrifices or observe any more ceremonial feast days. That's very clearly written. And now what about that nailed on the cross? See, Paul wrote in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 to 17, that Jesus wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public sacrifice of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding, regarding a festival or any new moon or new Sabbaths or all Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance of, but the substance is of Christ. Unquote. Notice what Paul is writing here is the handwriting of requirements or the ordinances or the sacrificial laws was blotted out. So these ordinances, these requirements, were against us and contrary to us, the very thought expressed by Moses when he said in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26, that the book of the law was against us. In other words, the ceremonial law doesn't need to be observed anymore after Jesus had nailed um, that on the cross. 
and let no one judge you. Paul urges the Colossians not to let anyone judge them in food or in drink or regarding festivals or a new moon or Sabbath, notice that what says, which are indeed, and I quote, a shadow of things to come, unquote, which means it's just an indication and of the real thing. And when the real thing comes, these indicators are no longer relevant. In other words, the meat and the drink offerings are offered in conjunction with the feast days. While the book of Hebrews clearly states that the shadow refers to things associated with the ceremonial laws. Now we must also understand that while there is not necessary for God's people to obey these ceremonial laws today, but God still takes pride and delight in writing his law in our hearts. So hearts, your heart and mind, so that we can bring honor to him while we live lives of peace and joy that he wants us to live. Hebrews verse chapter 8 verse 10, I quote, For this is the covenant that I have made with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I mean, after those days. Now, now what he'll do is, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people, unquote. See, the old covenant we're talking about where the old ceremonial laws were that was God's agreement with Israel. That's in the Old, uh, old Testament. God agreed that he would be Israel's God and Israel would be his people. And both parties agreed that the Ten Commandments would provide a framework for the covenant. Then comes the New Covenant, the New Testament. Simply... When the new covenant comes, it's simply the old covenant renewed. Now, renewed means with an emphasis. Emphasis is that God will be God to his people. And his people are not just Israel, but his people will be the believers in Christ. The Ten Commandments continue to provide a framework for a healthy relationship with God and his people. Not just God and Israel as it was in the Old Testament, but God and his people, God and his believers. As you can hear and understand now that God has extended his grace beyond the Israelites to anyone who believe and has faith in Jesus Christ. So, how, Well, then you can ask, well, anyone who believes in it, well, how can anyone keep this commandments. As some skeptics would say, the Ten Commandments are not easy to follow. In fact, generally we would fail in at least one of them. And the skeptics would say, well, then is God trying to guarantee failure for us? Not really. God is guaranteeing success for us. And this is how he does it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and I quote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, unquote. So what does it mean? It just simply means this. God recognizes that on our own, using our own limited human power or the power of the flesh, we will never, never, ever fulfill the Ten Commandments. God recognizes that. The Bible tells us very clearly that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. So what does 
falling short of the glory of God means. It simply means this. It means, and I'll put it in a very simple example, to obey completely and to completely fulfill God's requirements in those commandments for us. It is like us saying, there is a requirement in a school basketball team that everybody must be three meters tall, everyone, before you can join the basketball team. And you and I are only one and a half meters tall. Now, when you are one and a half meters tall, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter what exercise you partaking, you will never grow ever in your life from 1.5 meters to 3 meters tall. You will continuously, for your life, fall short of the requirements of this basketball team of 3 meters tall. That's what falling short of the glory of God means. You will never fulfill. But God knows that. And God has a plan and He does this. He just says, however, through the Holy Spirit, whom he will send to you and me. Jesus is willing to live his life in us. By his presence, by his power, he will strengthen us. He will strengthen God's people and we can be assured of making the basketball team. We can be assured of as if we have fulfilled God's commandments. That's what Galatians 2.20 is saying. We live in Christ, not I who live, but Christ who lives in me, in the form of the Holy Spirit. So in my basketball example, it's just saying that we know you can't make it, but we are going to send somebody to help you and guarantee that you'll make it and join the club. It's as simple as this. And when you fulfill God's commandment, which by ourselves, as we talked about, will never fulfill, then how can we be fulfilled at all? Well, this is how. This is what God's plan is for us. God, in His mercy, is simply saying, you can be saved. We, and God saying, I can look at you as if you have fulfilled all the commandments. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. I quote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, unquote. So salvation, meaning you are being saved from sin, is a gift to you and cannot in any way be earned. You can never exercise enough to grow from 1.35 meters to 3 meters. In this instance, the basketball team says, here is a gift for you. Come in anyway. We see you as three meters, even though you are only 1.5 meters. While God promises us heaven's power to enable us to live in an obedient life, salvation is not received as a result of our obedience of God's law. Salvation is given to us by invitation, by a gift, and this gift is received only if the sinner exercises faith in God's ability and willingness to save him. When you choose to accept the gift of salvation, you know that salvation is yours, full stop, guaranteed. In other words, 
the basketball team member or the manager of the basketball team says, you and I can come in even though we fall short of three meters. We will bring you in. Here is an invitation to come in. Sign here. You and I will have to do is sign here. Accept this gift from the basketball team manager. If you don't accept this gift, if you don't sign here, you'll never make it. You'll never get into the club. You have to accept this gift given to you by God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by what you do, by, by what you accept. That is the faith in what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Well, you're going to say, is this as simple as that? Just accept the gift. Yes, it is as simple as that. Accept Jesus Christ, Christ as your personal Savior. Trust him, have faith in him. And when you put your will to obey to him, surrender to him totally, this gift of grace is yours forever. As simple as that. Now then the follow-up question is, what should a person do when we break the commandments? You see, we are still, even though we have accepted this gift, we still have a sinful nature and we will sin. So what happens? Well, let's look at a few verses. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And I quote, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Unquote. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, and I quote, If we then confess our sins, he is faithful, he being the Lord, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, unquote. So the answer to the question is when a person sins after he has, beat, he has accepted the grace of God, what do you need to do? You just need to know and trust and your faith in Jesus, that Jesus is already our lawyer up there in heaven, arguing our case for us. We have an advocate up there. And on top of that, if we sincerely and genuinely confess our sins, now the word is sincerely and genuinely, because God knows that, that we do sin sometimes. But the important thing is God knows our heart. God knows that you are blatantly using this grace, a cheap grace to keep sinning. If we were that, we are not going to have the mercy of our Lord. The Lord knows our genuineness and our fight to continue to head towards God and not use God as a means to continue to sin. God knows our heart. So if we are genuine, and if we are humble and we confess our sins, as soon as you confess your sins, it means you have to turn in your ways. You confess from first from your heart and then through your mouth and then you follow that with action, the confession with action. And the action is to turn in your ways. And when you do that, you will be forgiven. And when you do that, you'll be cleansed. God is willing to forgive anyone. Forgive you, forgive me who comes to him in repentance. That's what we mean. 
When we are genuine, He will continue to help us. And what is the key to living in harmony in God's law? Living with that in our heart? John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Unquote. In other words, Jesus is referring to what happens when a person loves God, genuinely loves, respect, honor God and his or her with his or her whole heart. If you honor, respect, and worship God genuinely with your heart, with your mind, with your soul, then you are loving God. And the result would be an ever deepening surrendering to God when you love Him and when you obey Him. And when you do that genuinely, you will obey Him naturally. That's how we keep living in harmony with God's law. So in conclusion, I want you to ask this yourself this question in the quietness of your home. Are you willing today to invite Jesus to live His life in you, in your heart, and to guide you in a life of loving obedience to God? And I pray that your answer is yes. The answer is quite obvious. You have a choice to turn away from violence, anger, sin towards God and live a peaceful life on earth. The answer is yes. You would invite Jesus in your heart to help you do that. Thank you and God bless you.